This is Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. Bell Shakespeare would like to acknowledge that this episode was recorded and produced on the lands of the Gadigal and Wongal people of the Eora Nation, the traditional custodians of the land, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. Imagine that you see the wretched strangers, their babies at their backs and their poor luggage plodding to the ports and coasts for transportation, and that you sit as kings in your desires, authority quite silent by your brawl, and you in rough of your opinions clothed. What had you got? I'll tell you, you had taught how insolence and strong hand should prevail, how order should be quelled, and by this pattern not one of you should live an aged man. For other ruffians, as their fancies wrought with self-same hand, self-reasons, and self-right would shark on you, and men like ravenous fishes would feed on one another. Say now the king should so much come too short of your great trespass as but to banish you, whither would you go? What country, by the nature of your error, should give you harbour? Go you to France or Flanders? To any German province? To Spain or Portugal? Nay, anywhere that not adheres to England, why you must needs be strangers. Would you be pleased to find a nation of such barbarous temper that, breaking out in hideous violence, would not afford you an abode on earth, wet their detested knives against your throats, spurn you like dogs, and like as if that God owed not nor made not you, nor that the elements were not all appropriate to your comforts, but chartered unto them, what would you think to be thus used?' This is the stranger's case, and this your mountainish inhumanity. Welcome to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm your host, James Evans, and that was Thomas More from scene six of Sir Thomas More, read by our guest this week. She is an award-winning actor and director. She's a graduate of the National Theatre Drama School in Melbourne and has trained with a city company in New York and Zen Zen Zo Physical Theatre. For Belle Shakespeare, she's appeared in Antony and Cleopatra and The Dream and directed a production of Romeo and Juliet for young audiences. This year, she's directing Belle Shakespeare's national tour of the Comedy of Errors. In 2016, she won the inaugural Sandra Bates Directing Award at the Ensemble Theatre and went on to direct Unqualified, Nearer the Gods and Unqualified 2 for the company. In 2018, she won a Glug Award for Best Supporting Actress for Red Lines of View from the Bridge and was also nominated for a Sydney Theatre Award. In 2020, she won the Sydney Theatre Award for Best Female Performer in an Independent Production for The Happy Prince, produced by Little Ones Theatre. It's my great pleasure to welcome Janine Watson. Janine, welcome to Speak the Speech. Thank you, Jimmy. Now, this is wonderful. I'm so happy that you chose this speech. We haven't had this one yet. From an obscure play, Sir Thomas More, tell me what appeals to you about this piece. It's really, when it sort of got brought into the spotlight, I guess it would have been about five years ago now, six according to your timeline with Ian McKellen doing that production of it. Mm, but um, mm. it, it, there was a whole like 
surge of spotlight onto onto Shakespeare again for its um for its undateability. Like the, <laughs> it just simply doesn't date. Mm. And in fact, like this speech, and you know, I'd argue more than many speeches that I've read of Shakespeare's, and there are many, it resonates so profoundly to right now. You know, I wish that he had written this to come out of the mouths of protesters. It's so clear, so um, impactful, mm. you know, mm. in how it makes its argument, mm. you know. And in a very strong way because really the argument is around empathy. Yeah. It, it, it appeals to empathy. It says, well, how would you feel if you had to leave your country and were seeking help from someone else and everyone were shutting their doors against you? What would you do? And I think that is such a powerful way to teach people and to appeal to them is using that idea. Absolutely. You know, from from infancy, the way to teach a child empathy is to model it mm. and to, you know, offer them opportunities to see themselves through other people's eyes. Yeah. And it's so yeah. telling that, you know, and that's contemporary psychology really, you know, mm. it's so telling the neglect on the minds of people, you know, that, they haven't been modelled that or that hasn't been the approach to how to teach empathy through centuries, yeah. you know, it, the neglect of that major human factor. Yeah, so, I mean, what, I mean, the context of this speech obviously is that people are protesting that immigrants are coming in and taking their jobs. I mean, extraordinary that, mm. uh, you know, this is a story that we hear over and over again in our societies. Yeah. And Thomas More steps in and tells them that's absolute nonsense. Yeah. And the fact that they are strangers should not preclude you from looking after them, protecting them and, and welcoming them into your, into your society. And in fact should compel you, you know, should mm. compel you. Mm, absolutely. It's interesting the way this play was written because it's unlike many other plays um, that we obviously deal with on this podcast and Shakespeare plays which were largely just written by himself. This is early in Shakespeare's career and so it's written by two other writers and then kind of, um, what do you say, script, script doc doctor? Script it doctor. It sounds like he was a script doctor, mm. like brought in to, you know, add some flourish and some, you know, uh, you know, great concepts into the work. You yeah. know, maybe it was a bit lean. Yeah. Maybe it was a bit, you know, two dimensional. Mm -hmm. And they bring the script doctor in to, yeah. <laughs> you know, punch it up. I love that absolutely. And that way, it's kind of more like a Hollywood script, isn't it? Yeah. You know, where it's someone like writes a Netflix it. series. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, and then someone's brought in to to revise it. I think a couple of writers um, were brought in to revise this particular one so it's a mishmash of five five or six different writers all all in one um so hasn't had much um uh hasn't had much popularity in production why recently. don't you think it hasn't been why do you think it hasn't been done in australia well like, do you think it could be done in australia or do you think it it's could dense? well i i think part of the part of the problem is dram dramaturgically it's it's um Too very uneven yeah, yeah it's it's very uneven so you'd need to really uh, do a job on it, uh, editing it. Also, there's about 50 or 60 characters in there. There's huge crowd scenes. You know, I, I think it's probably a pretty expensive production to yeah, mount. Like <laughs> uh, so, um, it, and, uh, you know, also because it's um, less known, but I think we should definitely have a reading of it. Um, yeah. Uh, it's in, in what's what's also interesting is that it seems like this is the only piece of handwriting that we have of Shakespeare is just this speech they've got it wow. at the British Library, uh, and um, you can actually see Shakespeare's handwriting. Uh, handwriting. That's work. extraordinary. That it's mm. the only 
only living piece of, well, not living, but, you know, mm. it's the only documented piece of yeah. his writing of all the canon. Yeah, isn't that? That it be this one. Isn't that bizarre that all of these plays that we know and love, mm. we don't have any record of him actually writing them down. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so this is his only piece of yeah, writing, only confirmed right. piece of writing. This is it. Mm-mm. This is it. And, and even then people dispute it. Yeah, I mean, who who knows if that, I mean, but but. Most scholars, I think, believe that this is actually his his writing. Yeah. And there's only a couple of scenes in this play that he's done, but you can really tell which ones they are because they pop. <laughs> they do because there's a real clarity to the ideas. Mm. And just working with Shakespeare now, you know, being in the rehearsal room, there's an economy to the way he writes mm. Mm. Um, and a clarity to the the structure of his thoughts. Yeah. Um, and they're also not uh, heady. Yep. They're they're really human mm, and that's, mm. I think, a, a, a big difference between his and a lot of the other historical writing that's preserved around that time mm, is mm. a lot of it is still dealing in concepts and ideas mm. and, and you know, um, rather than the human experience. Yes, and yes. this this definitely speaks to someone who's connected to the human experience yeah, and absolutely. who wants to convey that. This play a lot of it is about obedience to authority and and, and in this speech and around it um, uh, Thomas More tells them you know you've got to listen to the king you've got to follow his his directions and that was I think again Shakespeare treading a fine line between um, you know being seen as some kind of insurrectionist <laughs> and actually playing by the rules mm-hmm. and he was he was so good at that he was so good at treading that line so so carefully while a lot of other playwrights ended up in prison or even dead he managed to get right to the end of his career without getting in trouble and you know he's a bit cheeky in this because he actually enlists the king in this one in i think a really cheeky way uh, to, to bolster his idea mm. and, you know, he says, say now the king should so much come too short of your great trespass but as to banish you. Mm. Do you mm. know what I mean? And it, it's that thing of like he had this way of doing that that could – it's actually not a compliment at all but by enlisting him, mm-hmm. enlisting the king, he kind of – he makes himself a bit bulletproof to the – impact of authority yes does that make sense yeah to criticism yeah Yeah. like Mm -hmm. because he actually paints paints authority into the picture in a way that um would make them think about the actions that come from it without insulting them yes yes you know what i mean yeah the insult is firmly squarely on the people he's talking to but he's going you know what if our king thought that you actually just weren't worthy Mm -hmm. you know and you had to be banished and you had to be banished and and i feel like that is the way he he does that in quite a few plays Mm. you know Mm. obviously thomas more historically was you know henry the eighth's lord high chancellor and he he opposed the um, Henry's um, religious reforms and eventually was executed by by King Henry because he wouldn't sign the document saying that Henry was the head of the church. Now Shakespeare is writing here at a time when Queen Elizabeth is on the throne, the daughter of King Henry VIII. Protestantism is very much entrenched in in the country. So you would think that Thomas More, as a as a kind of uh, Catholic martyr, as it were, uh, would be would be an outcast. But but Shakespeare deals with him very very sympathetically here. He looks on him as as someone with great empathy and compassion, and and doesn't shrink away from that. I find that really interesting. Well, the principles of all religion, if you strip it of hierarchy, if you strip it of the structures of actual religious order, is about compassion and empathy. And really, that's what make made great for me. That's what makes Shakespeare 
a great and relevant writer, you mm. know, is actually the humanity in his writing. For me, that's the most profound thing to deal with when working with his text mm-hmm. and the most, the, the biggest gift that he offers a director or an actor. Now, Janine, you're right in the middle of Comedy of Errors rehearsals now. Yes. It's week three. Yes. The time when directors yes. fall to pieces. Yes, I want to I want to bang my head on the microphone right now. <laughs> Tell me what's going on um, with with the show in well, the middle of rehearsal. Great. Well, the um it's it's a wonderful room. Um the most beautiful actors. Um they're a really wonderful ensemble. I'm mm. working with Sam Chester, who is an extraordinary movement director. Um and We've had Jess Chambers in the room. We've got mm-hmm. a wonderful creative team. It really is a very confusing week because the play is very confusing. Yeah. The mm-hmm. play capitalises on confusion. Yes, of course. Yeah. And, you know, I think it, I really feel the week threeness of it. Mm. Um, but what what we've discovered, like, there are so there are really exciting discoveries because, you know, when I was sort of asked to do this play. For me, I was looking at it from a fairly 2D perspective mm. and my inst- my instant response is like, oh, comedy of errors. But when you go back to the play, yeah. it's so true of that play, what we've been saying about Thomas More and this speech, mm-hmm. is that the Comedy of Errors is actually a play about people trying to find themselves and connect to love after years of isolation mm-hmm. and searching. Mm-hmm. Um, it's And it's really deep. Now yeah. that sounds funny because you're looking at the yeah, comedy of errors. very surface kind of comedy, yeah. And it is not. Mm-hmm. And I have this concept that I call received perception. And for me it has emerged through looking at female characters in Shakespeare mm-hmm. and going, oh, the received perception that we've got from years and centuries and whatever of doing these plays is that this woman is X, Y, Z. She's a shrew or she's evil or this. But the script, there's nothing in that to suggest it. So we are inheriting ideas about plays and characters that actually don't exist in the work. Mm -hmm. So Comedy of Errors, the received perception of it is lightweight, thin, I would say. Most people think it's fairly thin. Mm -hmm. Um, A bit of fluff, a diversion. And actually it is quite the opposite. You know, the first speech that Antiphilus says to the audience where he says, I to the world am like a drop of water that in the ocean seeks another drop Mm. and falling forth to find my fellow there, unseen, inquisitive, lose myself. He's so so lost Mm. and he's looking for something. And when you play it for real, they're the discoveries we're making in rehearsals, that when you play the play for real from a place of humanity Mm. and deal with these people like real people rather than comic bing-bong-bing archetypes, they are beautiful characters. Yeah, yeah. And obviously, I mean, that's the way the the play actually starts. I was talking to Maitland Snars on this program the other week and and he was you know, he has to take on that huge speech at the beginning setting up the backstory of uh, the separation of the twins mm. of the shipwreck of course and and the heart, and the, be the beating heart at the beginning of the play so we are immediately thrown into a very dramatic situation definitely life and death it, life and death 
Mm. Life and death, the stakes are so high. But then that makes it funnier as well, doesn't That's it? That's right. <laughs> it makes it funnier and it, it makes it funnier if they keep buying into the confusion. Mm. It What's funny is when they really don't get it mm -hmm. and if you don't leave space for them to connect the dots yeah. because Honestly, the the two and Antipholus and Dromeo of Syracuse are looking for their twins. So mm. the fact that they don't at any point in the play go, maybe they're confusing me because my twin lives here. Yeah. The fact that they <laughs> never do that for me speaks to the fact that the play needs to keep moving quite swiftly mm. and leave no gaps for them to drop into a moment of yes reflection. Reflection. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, that's right. This concept that. Um, higher stakes produces better comedy, I think is is true of a lot of comedy and Midsummer Night's Dream in particular. And I wanna I wanna bring you back to a memory. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember your first audition for Bell Shakespeare. Okay? I do remember the audition. Yeah. I, okay. I remember the feeling of doing it. Yeah. You, you were it was in the old Argyle rehearsal room. You were auditioning for the players and you had the scene for of Helena and Demetrius. Okay. And every time we'd seen Helena uh, and, and it's that scene where she says, I am your spaniel, Demetrius, and the more um, I fawn on you. Beat me, I will fawn on you. I will fawn on Use you. Use me, but as your spaniel. Yeah. Yes, beat me, spurn me, strike yeah. me, um, lose me. Anyway, usually we would see the Helenas, you know, kind of doing spaniel acting, getting down on all fours, acting like a dog, um, trying, trying to be funny, acting funny. And then all of a sudden you did it and kind of un unlocked the scene for me in a way <laughs> where, where you you where it was just real. It, it was just, you know, this is actually how I feel and how you're making me feel. And it was absolutely heartbreaking and funny at the same time. Do you know what oh, I mean? Well, that's a lovely compliment. Where, whereas when people were trying to force the humour, it wasn't as funny. So so I've, I really learned something in that audition that oh, day. Oh, that's amazing. Well, yeah, yeah that, that is a really classic example and, in fact, really relevant to what we're doing up there, mm. you know, because also the spaniel acting and all of that like, you know, oh, I'll be this puppy for you, that's mm. not actually she's saying I am your spaniel mm. to you I am a spaniel I'm a dog I'm all these things mm. so that's fine but in that if that's your truth then I'm allowed to fawn on you mm -hmm. do you know what I mean yeah yep. yeah that's right yeah um but it, it's it's exactly the same because the spaniel acting takes up a lot of time <laughs> it actually slows the scene down. Yep. And yep. it's the same up here and that's the balance we're trying to strike with the Dromeos and the Antipholuses and the scenes that can often be quite farcical and slapstick, you know, where we get a lot of physical action that ends up slowing the scene down. Mm -hmm. And actually the the Antipholuses often have to kind of um, stop their impulses because mm -hmm. they want to take you that and that and that. Why, why are you beating me? Like it needs to go blah, 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 blah. Mm. And the actual physical slapstick that's often re uh, concocted by a director yeah. slows yeah. it down. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Well, you want to just drive through the, the text. There's the ways of incorporating physicality into the text that mm. means that everything just keeps rolling. So things like that scene which I've been advised to cut, which I haven't yet, yep. the father time, pate, bald Oh, thing. yes, yes, yes. Yep. yes. Um, that scene needs to emerge out of a need to repair and mm. repair quickly mm -hmm. and get back on a level with the Antiphilus from Jomeo's perspective mm. Mm. to repair their relationship, which yeah. has gone pear-shaped in a heartbeat. And also in this production, Janine, you mentioned Sam Chester working physically uh, with the cast and with you. 
you're creating a physical language for the play. What does that mean practically? For, for this particular show, it means that so there's nothing – the, the, there's no naturalism the actors are tied to. Mm. So they are they are allowed to employ their whole body to express emotion, to express their intentions and their objectives. The physical language, basically, we're using we're having movement sequences throughout the play. Right. With the whole cast. With gets the whole involved. cast. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what that allows us to do is create a physical landscape where the actors' bodies are at the forefront, Mm. which means we don't have to obey any rules of naturalistic discourse. If if they're begging, they get down on their knees and beg. You know, it it transcends a sense of domesticity. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, but but it's, but it's, it, it is built through the entire work. So by putting the movement sequences in, we see the actors using their bodies in this way from the top to represent the journey of Aegean. Yes. Um, oh, and through the shipwreck, the shipwreck yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Through a, you know, a, 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 a disco introduction to Ephesus mm, because mm. this play is set in the 70s. And at every point the actors are completely coming from their body first. Mm. But having a movement director work with viewpoints and other modalities with the actors every morning, Mm. it gives them a consistent toolbox of physical language so they all are coming from the same world. So it's not that one actor is employing a type of, you know, farcical uh, physical you know, characteristic, they're all coming from the same set of rules and language that Sam introduces every day, you know, works with them through the movement warm-ups. Yeah, and and basically it means that the actors' bodies are the, the most important thing in the space. You're listening to Speak the Speech, the podcast from Bell Shakespeare. I'm James Evans, and with me today, Janine Watson. Janine, do you remember when you first encountered Shakespeare? Yeah, it was, yeah, I do. Uh, it was in Dead Poets Society. Dead Poets Society, yeah. no kidding, no Robin kidding. Williams. Yeah, okay. it was the, uh, yeah, that was definitely yeah. it. They did Midsummer Night's Dream. Mm. And so it was the sonnets, but then the um, the the performance that the character does in that of Midsummer Night's Dream. Yeah, yeah. And and for me, like like that film, for example, was actually a beautiful, it felt like it lived in a place in history that was far before the 50s. Mm. It had a timelessness about it. Mm-hmm. And that I think is why the Shakespeare made so much sense because it existed in that space without feeling like they were doing something historical. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Sure. Yeah, like... I don't know. It was, yeah, that had a real impact. Yeah, wow. Real impact. And then so did you do it at school? What was it like at school? Yeah, I did do it at school. Um, I actually chose it a lot at school. So in in high school when I went to school in Tasmania um, and, you know, when we'd have to do poems for English or, you know, a performance for drama, Mm. I would always integrate Shakespeare into it. Like Mm. I'd always choose a sonnet or, you know, asked to do a scene from Shakespeare and I mm. think it was because oh, I saw that movie when I was like 11 or 10. Oh, okay. I was really yeah. young. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it was this thing where it, it, the poetry in it really spoke to me so I kept trying to integrate that and also the sense of um, it, it's really what made me want to be an actor. Um, mm. But it was the combination of film and Shakespeare, funnily enough, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yes, I did and I had great drama teachers all throughout school and English teachers actually mm. that encouraged that and embraced that and then, you know, 
like a lot of but 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 it wasn't necessarily deeply embedded in the syllabus mm, like right. i never did a full shakespeare production and actually year 12 i did comedy of errors but oh, it was yeah. an outside independent company oh okay yeah. yeah yeah and um and that was the first shakespeare production i was in yeah right funnily enough you know in dead poets obviously there's a tragedy at the end of that film uh, perhaps driven by very strict parents who don't want their child to have anything to do with the arts and get mm. into theatre. Were, were your family always supportive of, oh, the, of your choices? God, yes. Actually, mm. you know, like there were some questions, but I, almost like perfunctory questions around, mm-hmm. oh, do you think you should do that? Yep. Oh, <laughs> is that, do you really, do you think you're good at that? Oh, all right. Um, but like honestly could not, my dad has always said, do what makes you happy. Mm. Like he's always said mm. that. He's he only has one rule, which is like don't leave a job before you have a job, which in the arts is really yeah, actually hard. Um, <laughs> but um, but he has always said do what makes you happy. And my mum comes to every show two or three times mm. and has always done that. Mm. And she'll travel wherever they'll travel wherever we are yeah. to go and see them. Well, you know, you, you've had. Uh, I mean, you're on this career trajectory now. You started as an actor. You've brought directing in as well over the last few years. What was that like, making that transition? You started with the with the players early on in your career and then suddenly you're directing the players. What was that like, being in the players and I remember then directing the phone call them? when you called me to ask me to direct them on a Friday night while weird? I was doing the plays. It was weird actually but... In a way, it felt like a quite a natural transition for me. And I say that say, knowing that like acting, uh, it's a 50-50 career for me, mm-hmm. although I haven't done acting in quite a while because of the pandemic. You've been so busy. Been busy but, and, and, and just with the pandemic, sure. it's haven't been able to and the baby and everything. Mm-hmm. But directing felt like a really natural movement for mm-hmm. me. And I think it's just about those little life choices that you make where you go, hmm, this is a moment. What will it do if I say yes to this? What mm. will it do to my understanding of my career? But direct when people ask me about directing things, it always created a little sense of excitement yeah. in me. Like okay. I go, oh, mm-hmm. so it was exciting, yeah. and it was exciting to do, and I loved doing that for the few years that I did that. And you had your partner Rowan in that first yeah. team of actors that that's you directed. Right. Yep, <laughs> and he he and I have collaborated on that's we got together while we were producing a show for the Melbourne Fringe together. Yeah, right. <laughs> a two-hander that we did together and mm. directed together, mm. Um, mm. and mm. that's how we we got together mm. twelve years ago. And yeah. so he's always been a key collaborator. So yeah. that was great. And you know, I've worked with him since, and I'll work with him my whole life I reckon yeah for sure because then uh, just at the ensemble I think that was this year you did yeah. you did a show and he he was one of the lead roles yep. in that too yeah absolutely and it really is that thing where you know you can't put your partner in everything but then you <laughs> but you read roles like I read Edmund Halley and went oh look this role's made for him mm. it's mm. made for him mm. and um so it was wonderful David Williamson had to you know give the tick of approval for that one yeah, sure. um and yeah. so that was great but yeah. yeah we it's a wonderful creative collaboration when we get to do it yeah 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 touring is tricky it's challenging it's hard this show that you are directing now is going to go on tour although you won't go on the entire tour but you have been on very big tours with Shakespeare mm. around the country how do you maintain a, a, a sense of freshness with the show when you're doing it day after day after day just a couple of times in one town moving on to a new town how do you maintain uh, that energy really the 
it is new every time. Mm. It is because and this this has developed over years of, you know, learning to be able to recreate performance. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, the conversation with the audience is new every time. Yeah. If they are the second half of the, the conversation between yeah. what's happening on stage, it is new every time. Yeah, right. Every single time. Mm-hmm. And it's quite humbling to go into a show where you're tired and then you do a sort of a walkthrough of it. You know, it's sort of like, oh, get this one done, mm-hmm. punch out this, you know, 1 p.m. matinee. Yeah. And then at a certain point you hear an audience laugh or maybe you see one of them falling asleep in the front <laughs> row and you go, oh, I yeah. haven't done that job of waking this audience up or if I hear them laugh, oh, I haven't heard them laugh there before. That's right, this is new. There's a live audience there. Mm. So for me it's about remembering the audience. That's yeah. really key and, yeah, and, and you know, also just your attitude toward it. Like working with actors who get negative or bored of it, I get it mm. and everyone will go through that stage and it's mm. unrealistic to think that actors won't. But when you stick in that place and you're like, Oh, yeah, it's really boring Mm -hmm. and really hard to work with. Yeah. So, you know. It's hard in the dressing rooms as well when that attitude comes in. Definitely. It's It's infectious actually. It is. It is. And Mm. it can change the dynamic of a whole cast. Mm -hmm. So it's like get over it and do your job. <laughs> do your job. <laughs> Spoken like a true director. Now you're on the other side. That's now right. Now you're I'm on the other side it. of the fence. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I do have so much empathy for actors, but I do think people don't understand how their what they bring in affects everyone. Mm. You know. Mm. So it's yeah, not pretending you don't feel a certain way, but also not letting it dictate yeah sure what about young audiences though i mean this is something you have had quite a lot to do with over the years some people say oh they're the most honest audience others uh, others say no they're not because they're constantly looking to their friends to see how they're reacting and then they react what's your take on on how to deal with young audiences i think that both things are true but also if they're looking to their friends and how to react they're looking for a way in Mm-hmm. You know, so if they if their friends are laughing and then they go, oh, maybe they just need more understanding. Maybe they'll go back and look into why they were laughing. If their friends are acting cool and they're not, you know, letting themselves be immersed in it, mm. maybe they'll miss out and they won't have that experience then. But I, I you know, I think there's, you know, they're not bad. <laughs> it's not bad mm. if they aren't invested in the work. Yeah. It, you know, they're learning to appreciate live performance and Shakespeare can be tricky in yeah. that way. Uh, yeah. No, I, I think young audiences are incredibly honest but they're also very intelligent and they don't have a, the same filter system that adults do. Yeah, right. So they don't have a, a – they don't have the same level of um, politeness built into them and I think that that should be <laughs> yeah. embraced you know, mm. audiences sometimes, you know, just having done the comedy at Ensemble, Unqualified too, mm. um, the women would start to notice some audiences are a bit too ashamed to laugh out loud if there aren't people guiding it. Right. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Adults mm-hmm. do that. They muffle their responses if not everyone's laughing. So they're doing exactly the same thing. Yes. Or if there's some uproar, I'm a good laugher in an audience and mm-hmm. if someone who's a good laugher is in the audience... It encourages it everyone encourages else people. to laugh. So yeah. we still mm-hmm. do that. Yeah, you know? yeah, as adults. Yeah, as adults. You directed Romeo and Juliet for young audiences um, for Bell Shakespeare at the Opera House. Did you ever sit in on a uh, with an audience of four hundred kids yep. in there? What, what's that times. vibe like? What was that like? 
Great. Um, it's, it's excellent. You, um, you can feel the moments where they lean in Mm -hmm. and they, you can, and that was a great education for me, that show in also trusting my own instincts, um, and you know, within collaboration, but you can feel when they're leaning in and you can feel when they're leaning away. Yeah. Yeah. And in a way that, you know, an adult might come out of a Shakespeare performance and they may have like liked 70% of it or not just Shakespeare but any play mm-hmm. and go, oh, yes, that was really good. And, you know, young people who go, we'll, we'll, we'll actually be more honest about it and if it didn't grab them, it just they're not going to be polite about it. Yeah, yeah. So you can, it was great because there were some moments of beautiful success in that production and then there were moments where they would lean back and it wouldn't quite grab them. Mm, and that's that's honest, I think. And that's a learning process for a director, definitely, I guess, as definitely, well. Definitely, yeah. yeah. So where to next for you? Are you going to keep directing Shakespeare? Are you going to keep, I mean, obviously the ensembles got you now. They want you to do, I assume, two or three shows a year. They really want oh, they, want, they are actually keep you around. They are actually quite... Um, egalitarian they like to share around so this this I did the two shows back to back there because both of them were postponed during the pandemic right both of them were definitely always going to make it through all the postponements onto the actual stage Mm -hmm. and the scheduling just meant that they both ended up back to back Mm -hmm. um but ensemble like they would normally you do maybe one show a year for them okay and then and because they like to be able to bring in many, many people. Yeah, right. You know, yeah. they don't like actors to do more than one show a year oh, because, okay. you know, mm-hmm. or if they can help it, you know, mm-hmm. or or split them right apart the beginning and the end because they want many actors to be able to yeah, have right. a go. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I imagine I will direct for them again, but I love directing Shakespeare. You see how we go after this one. You know? <laughs> don't want to jump the gun. Um, <laughs> but um, And this particular production is the first production that I've directed where I've all of my creative ideas are able to exist in the space because I have the movement director, Sam Chester, and I have a very similar training background mm-hmm. and she's mm-hmm. just an expert in that background. So mm-hmm. she's done so much work in the modalities that we're working with. Mm-hmm. But her aesthetic and the way she thinks about things, mm-hmm. I'm able to, you know, bring a play to life in the way that I have always imagined. Yes. So, yep. you know... I've been able to lace my ideas through other ones and, you know, when I'm directing a straight play in the sense of like, you know, a drama like Nearer the Gods, Mm. you can actually draw in elements of that physical work but then Mm -hmm. you get to just work with the scenes and it's lovely. I love directing actors in scenes. Mm. Um, But um, this one, it can go the full explosion of all my ideas. Of course, of course. And but, but also you're a very collaborative person, I guess, in, in general, but also artist, collaborative artist. You, you know, you're working very closely with your sound designer, you know, set and costume designer and, and um, lighting designer, Sam Chester, um, movement uh, director and all of the cast. What is the balance between being a, you know, wonderfully collaborative director and then having to go, you know what, I'm going to make this decision now. I'm the director. That's yeah. enough voices in the room. <laughs> We're doing this. This is the way that choice is going to be. Moving on. It's a great. How do you do that? Question. Um, you you the you feel the moment. So I, I've had I have had moments like that because I do love the collaboration and a show kind of gets built on those things in a lot of ways um, when it's driven by performances and actor led, which mm. is what you know I really like to how I like to work, but. You know, we, we, there was a lot of discussions about a particular moment yesterday mm. and I realised overnight, oh, no, 
this is a, a decision I need to make. And mm. you do do that thing. You go, I've thought about it and this is what we need to do. Mm. Um, mm. And everybody respects that at the end of the day because, you know, I am, I have the, all the information. I'm yep. talking to everybody and I've sat with the play for so long. Mm-hmm. Um, and so people do respect that. Yeah. And you can do it without, you know, kind of offending anyone. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Janine, it's been so great talking to you. You today too. it's so great now just before we go of course we have the final five five quick questions we need five quick answers here we go janine number one five quick answers yeah oh well yeah which do you prefer the lover the villain or the fool i think the villain the yeah? villain yeah yeah uh, uh, the fool's fun but i think the villain because they're more complex mm. probably lovers can be complex too but the villain is complex what's your most underrated shakespeare play richard the second Beautiful poetry in that Beautiful play. poetry and just a, re- a, a, a complex character who isn't a villain but mm. is actually uh, really reckless and seized by their own power mm-hmm. and but walks into it and is sort of shocked yeah. when everyone goes, no, nah, mate, that's not how things work. Um, <laughs> but also I think it gives – there's a real opportunity in that character for – I think it would be a beautiful role for a trans actor. I think it would be a beautiful mm-hmm. role to kind of – you know, use gender diversity on because of the, 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 there's a kind of sense of, um, in the poetry, there's a sense of femininity, but in the actions, there's a sense of masculinity. Right. I think it's a great role. Mm, mm. Who's an artist you'd love to work with who you haven't worked with already? I, I this one, I, there's so many. Um, but the name that comes to mind <laughs> is Mark Rylance. Wow. Yeah. yeah just Mark, going, yep. Sure. Like, you know, I don't even know on what level, but I haven't worked with him and he's a genius. Yeah, absolutely. Um, he still denies that Shakespeare wrote Shakespeare, which I find bizarre. Does he? <laughs> yes, he does. Does he yes. really? Yeah, he's Is one he of those guys. Of the, um, <laughs> the Derek Jacobi. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Him, and, him and Jacobi are very much in cahoots. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Maybe but, uh, Harriet Walter then. <laughs> Harriet Walter. <laughs> What's a dream Shakespeare role for you that you'd love to play? I've got two. Mm. Uh, Beatrice. And Macduff. Wow. Beatrice, sure. Why Macduff? I don't know. Like the 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 fight, the yeah. scene in bloody England. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. the I don't know, the the defending your your house and your family mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. the tragedy he has to overcome in order to do that. Yeah. You know, he wins the, the play. He does. Isn't it interesting? He's the avenging hero, mm. but then at the end he's left with nothing. He's left with nothing. Yeah. 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 It's really sad. Even though they've won, he's he's lost his whole family, everything. Yeah. Yeah. If you weren't, Janine, an artist, what would you be doing? I would love to be a travel writer. Yeah? Yeah. Okay. I'd love that. Where do you want to go next mm. now that borders are open? Yeah. Well, I think the first place that I would go, I would love to go to Ireland. Mm. I've got, you know, lineage from Ireland and I've just been wanting to go there for years. Mm-hmm. I think I'd go back to, to France but, you know, I haven't been to India. I haven't been to Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. You know, I, there are places I'd love to go but I think we'd go back to France first because our daughter was, you know, conceived there. Yeah. I think she'd love it. Yeah. <laughs> Janine, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining me on Speak the Speech. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Jimmy. 
Bell Shakespeare is Australia's national Shakespeare company. We perform in theatres and schools in every state and territory. If you'd like to support our work or to learn more about what we do, please visit bellshakespeare.com.au. Speak the Speech is produced by Bell Shakespeare and edited by Camillo Zanoni. Be sure to follow at Bell Shakespeare on social media and don't forget to subscribe, rate and review the Speak the Speech podcast through your listening platform.